0: All right, good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. If you could, let's read a couple passages from the New Testament. Let's turn to, we're going to read a couple things that I think are imperative as we think about the deity of Jesus in the Council of Nicaea today. So if you turn to Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and then we'll read John 1 as well. Hear the word of the Lord in Colossians 1, verse 15, referring to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. Upon grace for the law was given through moses grace and truth came through jesus christ no one ever no one has ever seen god the only god who is at the father's side he has made him known let's pray heavenly father we praise you lord for the word becoming flesh lord thank you so much for the reality that christ came as a man and lived a perfect holy life and then died a cruel death on the cross and rose again and ascended into heaven and is now seated at your right hand. Lord, we praise you for that truth. Lord, praise you that in that truth, Lord, we have our redemption. Um, Lord, we have forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Lord, that you saw fit to do that, to purchase for him a bride. And that's who we are, the church. So, Lord, as we look at the history of your church, Lord, we pray that you would help us see how you have sovereignly maintained and kept and preserved your church, Lord, so you can create a pure bride, Lord, that will worship you one day undefiled. So, Lord, may we, even as we consider these things, Lord, worship you because of your sovereignty and for your great love for us. Lord, help us understand that um, the reality of the truth that we're talking about today um, did not come Um, freely and easily um, but it was a battle that was fought and um, lord it is evidence of your grace in the history of your church so thank you for that lord lord i ask that you would uh, bless us during this time in christ's name we pray amen okay well good morning i'm glad you guys are all here and today i have one really singular purpose and that is to talk to you about um, the formulation and um, execution, I guess, of the um, Council of Nicaea, which happened in um, the Roman Empire in 325 A.D. Um, last week we talked about the fact that the Christianity was now a recognized religion in the Roman Empire, and we talked about the fact that the, the era of persecution for the church had ended in the fact that now religious freedom and toleration was accepted in the Roman Empire. Um, We talked about the church being unified under the reign of the empire, and the emperor at the time is Constantine. He's still the emperor as we're talking today. Um, But today we'll talk about something that threatened to divide the church and still continues to threaten to divide the church, and that's theological Error and heresy. Um, so that's our primary pur- purpose today is to talk about that. And we'll see that in the Council of Nicaea, the primary issue at stake was the relationship of God the Father and God the Son, and whether Jesus, or as John refers to him as the Logos or Logos, whether Jesus is fully God. And that's the main topic we're going to talk about today. So last week I gave you about five points from Sinclair Ferguson who said, this is why we study church history. Two of those are especially applicable today. So I'm going to rehearse those again that I gave you last week. He gave us two of these insights. One, church history helps to illuminate and clarify what we believe. And in that way, allows us to evaluate our beliefs and practices against historic teaching. Um, So the Council of Nicaea and the production of the Nicene Creed is a watershed moment in the history of the church it cannot be um, oversold it is a big deal so tomorrow is october 31st it's reformation day um, so today is reformation day eve and by god's providence every week before reformation day i teach it seems like um, so just as important i would say and similar in there's certain Monumental events in all of history, and especially in the history of the church, church. So, just like uh, Luther, four hundred and ninety nine, four hundred ninety eight days or years and three hundred sixty four days ago uh, from today, um, nailed his ninety five theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany, um, which caused the explosion of the Protestant Reformation. So is the Council of Nicaea as far as the theology behind the divinity of Jesus, okay? So, I think one thing I wanted to highlight for you, though, because I always want to, if I had the opportunity, I'm going to mention something about the Reformation, because it is my favorite part in church history, is um, as you consider tomorrow, it's a monumental event in the church, Reformation Day, what I want you to consider um, for application for yourself is the fact that the Word of God is the primary um, impetus for the, for the Protestant Reformation. We love Luther, we love Calvin, we love Zwingli, we even love some Anabaptists. Yet, um, the primary character of the Reformation is the Word of God. The Word of God had been cloaked in uh, the, the language of the church for centuries up until the Reformation. So the explosion of the Reformation is due partly, primarily, let me correct myself, uh, because of the word of God being unleashed in the vernacular or the language of the people, okay? So we praise God for the Reformation, and um, you'll get plenty of that next year if you stick around and decide to come back um, about the Reformation. But we are now one year away from the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, which is exciting. Um, enough about that. That is not my, prime. that's not even in my notes, what happened there, but... What is in my notes? Let's get there. All right, so what I want to point out is the Council of Nicaea pretty much is the first of the major, what we call, ecumenical church councils. Um, Last week I mentioned that ecumenical means kind of universal. It means kind of the entire church is submitting themselves to these councils. It's not ecumenical in the sense that it's bringing branches of Christianity together like we think about ecumenical movements today. So we mean ecumenical, we mean um, universal. The whole church was involved in this. So, but it's important to understand that in the Council of Nicaea, the church is making orthodox views published in some way about the Trinity, about the deity and humanity of Jesus. As these um, councils proceed in the next 150 to 200 years, yet one of the main topics is the evolution of the idea of the Trinity. But it's not like Christians didn't believe in the Trinity before 325 AD. That's what I'll point out first for you. Um, but that the early church and obviously the New Testament writings both illustrate for us the view of the Trinity, even though the New Testament doesn't say the word Trinity. Um, so the idea of Trinity is rooted in the New Testament. Um, you can look up all the references that are out there. If you just type in Trinity and look for references in Google, You will find a myriad of uh, places, things like Jesus' baptism, Jesus' appeal to the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Great Commission. Jesus testifies as to himself about being uh, one with the Father. So God is one. That's one of the first things we note about the Trinity, that God is one and is made up in three persons. Um, So there's definitely... The, the roots of the trinity are in the new testament earliest liturgical prayers even from the 100s that we have record of talk about the trinity one is called the gloria Patri. Um, it, this is what this prayer says it says glory be to the father and to the son and to the holy spirit as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be without world uh, world without end amen so the idea of a triune god from the existence of time from the beginning the earliest church fathers believed and taught the trinity the very earliest ones didn't use the term trinity that came later they were witnesses of this truth but these guys were also trying to survive right and they're trying to to, and they're expanding and growing the church on some level they weren't trying to give underpinnings and interpretation to the idea of the trinity that comes later ...under times of peace, when they're free from persecution. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, but the deity of Christ was easily accepted um, at this time in the early church. One, um, one historian notes that the deity of Christ is professed in the oldest surviving Christian sermon... ...in the older, oldest surviving report of the death of a Christian martyr... ...and in the oldest surviving pagan report of a church service and in the oldest surviving liturgical prayer. So the deity of Christ and the idea of God being one all very early on in the church. Because there are some that make the argument that the idea of Trinity, the idea of Jesus being God, came about at the Council of Nicaea. And people still are holding to that belief. So what I'm trying to tell you is there's definite historicity to prove that um, the Trinity was talked about prior to the Council of Nicaea. Okay? Um, early attempts to explain this um, there's definitely some different views some heretical things came up but one was modalism which said that there was one God but that one God had appeared in three different modes of being um, that's not accurate, accurate that there was the idea is that there is diversity within the persons of the Trinity in their oneness um, Yet that's one of the things that was difficult for the church to explain early on was the oneness and the distinctions in the persons of the Trinity. Uh, the church father, Tertullian, was the first one to use the word Trinity. And when he talked about Trinity, he used, used words like substance, so God being of one substance, and persons to explain the Godhead, so that God exists, there's one God who exists in three persons. And of course... So we, have the, we know that the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, uh, so we have the Greek-speaking world that was heavily influenced um, by, um, in, in the early church, but there's also the Latin-speaking word as Latin starts to take over, so there's difficulty for the church to explain these ideas of substance and um, uh, persons when you start talking about Latin and Greek. Um, so there started to be some early struggles about that and that's kind of one of the roots of what we're talking about today in the the Council of Nicaea so the words in Latin and Greek were "ousia" and substantia so "ousia" from the Greek and substantia from the Latin, those are important terms for us to understand so I hope I've painted a picture that the early church believed in the trinity and believed in the deity of Christ yet Some came to challenge that, and the first, the the guy we're going to talk about, he's probably the only one we're going to talk about now that I think about it, as uh, opposing this, yet he had supporters, was a man by the name of Arius. So Arius lived in modern-day Egypt in Alexandria, which is one of the foremost areas of learning in the ancient world, Um, also one of the major seats of the church, so it's Rome, Constantinople, now that... Constantine has set up his reign there. Um, and then Alexandria and a couple other spots as well. But primary hubs of the church. <clears throat> and at that time, the church was led by, by, this is interesting. I wonder if this is, I just thought of this. It was led by a man by the name of Bishop Alexander. I wonder if all the bishops from Alexandria were named Bishop Alexander. Good question. Somebody researched that. Um, Bishop Alexander taught the congregation truth about the trinity and the deity of christ and he said things like translated into english always god always the son or at the same time the father at the same time the son so definitely talking about god's um, trinity triuneness and um but the diversity in the persons Um, and he had a protege that worked in the church with him and his name was athanasius that's character number one is athanasius we'll come back to athanasius um but the next character that comes on the scene is a guy named arius he was a young pastor within this church and he began to object to alexander's teaching so he thought the idea of talking about god in multiple persons Father, spirit we're not really going to get much into the spirit today um, but that comes up in the future councils um He thought that the idea that if you talked about these persons, it created the idea of multiple gods, okay? And he wanted to protect the idea of monotheism, that there is only one God. And that by talking about the distinct persons of the Trinity, that that was threatened. So he began saying things contradictory to Alexander. He said, if God and Christ were equal, then Christ should be called God's brother, not his son. He also would say there was a time when Christ was not. There was a time when the Son did not exist. So God would have made Jesus the Son. That was his philosophy at the time. He was influenced by Greek philosophy in Gnosticism. He almost would say that here's man over here, here's God over here, and Jesus, who became man, was partly God and partly man to make this other type of being okay is that exciting for anybody so kind of a demigod and definitely if you look at roman and greek culture there was always this intermix of humans and gods and there's some some that were half man half god i think hercules might have been that in history or in mythology Um, so these guys that's what his he's starting to say that this potentially could be a demigod that jesus was that this is what arius says okay let me be clear this is not the orthodox teaching. I am not saying this. That's what Arius said. Um, <clears throat> one um, historian says the Arian Christ was an incarnation of what is not God in what is not man. Okay? So an incarnation of what is not God in what is not man. In Latin, they call that the tertium Quid. A third thing, so besides human and God, the tertium quid. Um, So Arius held that Jesus was created by the Father. And if you look at that text we read in Colossians, there are some things there that might say, oh, he's the firstborn of all creation. Um, We've kind of come to understand that makes him preeminent above creation. Um, Yet they're taking proof texts of Scripture to argue this. So it's not like they're just coming up with some rational philosophy to explain this. They're actually trying to use scripture to say this. They also meant that the son, he also believed that the son was of lesser value than the father. And he cited John 14:28, which says that the father is greater than me. That's what Jesus says. So, they're using their biblical um text, which interesting, we haven't set the uh the uh The Bible has not been affirmed by the church. What are the authoritative books of the Bible yet? Yet they're all appealing to Scripture. So there must be some acceptance of the Bible in certain books of the Bible as well. Interesting too, so we're going to talk about that at some point, but I had this thought this morning um, as I was getting ready that nowhere does Arius point to a book like the Gospel of Thomas or something like that that we that are extra-biblical, that we've recognized as not part of the canon, he never appeals to one of those books, even in his uh, desire to show um, how he thinks his view is correct. So I thought that was interesting. You would have thought they would have been full of citations in the Gospel of Thomas or something like that, yet that's not the case. So even maybe at this point, the books that had authority, that God had given authority to, were already generally accepted by the church. Not really much controversy as to what is in the New Testament, like some try to argue, liberal scholars try to argue today. All right, so a controversy has arisen now because of Arius' teaching. He's obviously contr- contradicting what Alexander has taught and what the church as a whole is teaching. So the entire region was enveloped in this deba- debate, and it wasn't just theologians that were debating it. Um, It was like you would go to the marketplace and you would make your uh, stance known and someone would choose not to serve you or you would not be able to buy from this person because you were an Aryan or you believed in the uh, more historic or orthodox view. It was really interesting. It really split the area of Alexandria and it began to spread throughout the empire. Um, One one noted uh, historian said it was spirited like a political convention, probably more like a political debate, you know, more spirited like that. Little conventions generally have some unity to them, I think. Um, Arius even put his views to musical lyrics. Are you kidding me? We're singing songs about Arianism. Yet he did. Um, and I, Keith and Nathan brought this up to me today, how this actually rhymed in uh, Greek, but it rhymes in English, so I don't know where my source is for this, but I'll go ahead and read it for you because it's fun. Arius of Alexandria, this was his song. That the children would sing. I am the talk of all the town. Friend of saints. Elect of heaven. Filled with learning and renown. If you want the Logos doctrine. I can serve it steaming hot. God begat him. And before he was begotten. He was not. So God made. He's using begot to mean God made. And he's saying before God did that. Jesus didn't exist because God made him. But the fact that it was taken to those Popular tunes were made supposedly about explaining his position on Jesus's deity. So when he says this, when he says begotten, he means he was made by the Father. Um, So at this time, Alexander and his protege Athanasius, who is about twenty-five years old, uh, bring opposition to Arius. They argue yes that Christ was begotten, but that he was not created, and that he was fully equal to the Father. And citing, obviously, multiple texts, but John 1.1 1, 1 is helpful, John 10.30 as well, and that Christ is co-eternal with the Father. So, we had these opposing views, it's, so we have, what's interesting is we have relative peace now in the Roman Empire as it comes to Christianity, uh, they're not being persecuted by the state, yet here's a theological debate that threatens the unity of Christianity and in turn threatens the unity of the Roman Empire in Constantine's view. So Constantine, using his newfound uh, appreciation for the Christian faith, uh, calls a council in 325 at Nicaea. So 325, the council of Nicaea is convened. So the emperor calls that, so you church and state people that are interested in that relationship. Interesting that the emperor calls it, not the bishops of the church. Um, Location for Nicaea, it's in Asia Minor. It's about 45 minutes, 45 miles from Constantinople, which is modern day Istanbul, just to the uh, west of Istanbul. Um, They actually met, there was a great hall there for the emperor and that's where the bishops met, met and there was much pop and splendor involved in this council so this is the first time all the church was together to make decisions regarding what is orthodox teaching a church tradition says that 318 bishops along with other uh, deacons and presbyters came uh, this included Arius and Athanasius neither of which were a bishop at the time so the two main people making arguments for Arianism and against Arianism aren't bishops so their arguments are going to be made by somebody else in front of these bishops, because only the bishops could be, Im- be involved in the arguments. Uh, people came, these bishops came from all over the empire. They came from as far away as Persia to the east, and as far away from Spain to the west, from the west. So the, the, the amount of geography that was covered by these men was amazing. Um. More people from the eastern half of the empire attended than from the western part. Um, Part of that might have been because of proximity. Um, If you're wondering what happens, where's the bishop of Rome who already has a very uh, um, influential role in the church already? He did not attend. He was too old to attend, yet he sent some emissaries to attend on his behalf. They discussed not only the deity of Christ, though. Other things were were, uh, talked about probably a pretty good time while everybody's together to go ahead and get some other things settled so they talked about what is going to be the recognized date for Easter Um, so they talked about that they certified what they would say would be that date they talked about how to readmit those that had rejected the faith during the time of persecution um, and how do we receive them back into the church they talked about how to do that and what steps they would have to take how they would elect and ordain bishops and presbyters over general areas they talked about that and then which of the what they call episcopal sees which is like the geographic area that a bishop would reign over they talked about which of those would be given priority Um, so definitely some things as far as administration of the church were talked about so they got those things done and then they got down to the nitty-gritty details of talking about the deity of christ so that was their primary goal and the reason that they were brought together. So just to set the, the uh, stage a little bit about the council, Arius, it's not like he went there or his uh, compadres went there without any other people following them. They actually had a decent amount of support within the ranks of the bishops. Um, their view was that they would present their case, to all the bishops and it would be readily accepted because they thought it was so rational and reasonable that was their thought and a man uh, last week we talked about a man by the name of Eusebius the church historian Eusebius of Caesarea well there's actually two Eusebiuses in case anybody wants to know Uh, there's a guy from Eusebius of Nicodemia he made the Arian case in front of the bishops about um, why they felt like the Arian view was correct Alexander with the help of Athanasius made the um, presentation about uh, why the Arian case was wrong. So you kind of have this sector of Eastern and Western bishops, Eastern heavily influenced probably more by Greek culture and the Western ones more influenced by Roman culture on some level. Uh, So a lot of the Roman influenced Western um, bishops, didn't really have an opinion on the matter. So we're kind of thinking, man, surely they have the opinion, right, that these guys are just adamantly wrong. Um, They really kind of saw it more as a a debate within the eastern part of the empire. Um, And when they came, they weren't necessarily prepared to debate. They needed to be convinced one way or the other. Um, And what they were primarily concerned about, and probably under the influence of Constantine, they were most concerned about the unity and unification of the empire and Christianity under it so they saw this as an opportunity for the faith to be splintered and their goal probably going into this is we've got to seek some sort of compromise okay so uh, you have bishops that support Arius you have bishops that support Athanasius and you have bishops that don't really care they just want to make sure there's not too much trouble and we can keep our prosperity okay does that make sense um sounds like America doesn't it um So that's what was going on and who attended the church and what their views were. Um, Those bishops from the west were frustrated that the church was even entangled in this. Um, They should just be grateful that they had been freed from persecution. Um, This, one of the persons that agrees with that, one of the persons, one of the people, is Eusebius of Caesarea. So he's the one that's writing the history of the ancient church, including this time period. And he definitely was concerned about that. So the Arians present their case Uh, like I said earlier they were confident that it was going to be uh, that they were going to be found correct so Eusebius who is the one giving the Arian uh, view starts teaching and talking about how he believes that Jesus was made and how they believe that is the right way to go forward and as he's talking shouts of blasphemy and heresy begin accompanying his presentation. So obviously, obviously people are, some people are very much upset with this. Um, and at that time, as he's speaking, so some, some very well-meaning and good people will say, actually go up to Eusebius and snatch his speech, which is on some sort of scroll, out of his hand, tear it to pieces, and trample it underfoot. Right there. So Arianism is not going to make it very long, according to the Council of Nicaea, because that's all they present. Um, <clears throat> And then Athanasius presents his view, uh, not Athanasius, Alexander presents the view, which is the orthodox teaching that Jesus is God, and this is what they, they did, end up accepting that, and they came up with the word homoousius, so homo, hom that Christ is homoousius with the Father, of the same essence, of the same substance. not a separate deity but made of the same stuff as you've heard Dan say so Jesus, the conclusion of Nicaea was that Jesus is homoousius with the Father Um, the statement was that Christ was begotten like the scripture says, not made Um, another way to say it was that Christ was decreed to be eternal and divine, equal with the Father and infinitely greater than a created being those are the views that they came down with. I put on your notes what they ended up publishing. It's on the second page, the Nicene Creed. And really, so if you look at it, the very bottom part is kind of the condemnation of the Arians. We'll talk about that in a second. But there's kind of three steps here. And we're they're, this is what they wrote to say, this is what we believe. They're trying to say is we believe in Trinity, we believe in God existing in three persons and these are God being one and existing in three persons and this is what they say. Just look at it without reading it for a second. So we say we have some things about God, the Father, right, the the Father Almighty, maker of all things, and then a whole chunk about Jesus, right? Well, that's what they were arguing here. They weren't trying to formulate the entire trinity and then they just kind of throw in and in the Holy Ghost. So we believe in each of these things and in the Holy Ghost. They don't deal much with the Holy Spirit at all here. Um, but they do um, get to that eventually. Oh. But at this point, this is what they talk about. So let's read it. And some of the, I want you to, when we get to the part in the middle section about Jesus, think about what we read earlier in Colossians 1 and think about uh, John 1 as well. Because definitely some of these themes are picked up in that as well. So we believe. In one, I almost thought about having you guys stand and recite it with me, but we're not going to do that. Okay, <laughs> thought that might be a major adjustment for us. Uh, so we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is of the essence of the Father, God of God. So we're still talking about Jesus. So he's essence of the Father. That's homoesis. um, Homoousis, excuse me. God of God and light of light. Remember light in John 1? Very God of very God. Begotten, not made. Very clearly stated, not made. Being of one substance with the Father. That's again homoousis. By whom all things were made in heaven and on earth, who who for us, men, and for our salvation, came down and was incarnate, and was made man, he suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven, from thence he cometh to judge the quick and the dead, and in the Holy Ghost. And we believe in the Holy Ghost. And the last part says, and this is the condemnation by the Nicene Fathers. Against the Arians in those who say there was a time when he was not and he was not before he was made and so these are the things right here they're saying if you ever say these things we have a, we have a plan for you and he was made out of nothing or out of any or out of another sub- substance or thing or the son of God is created or chargeable or alterable they are condemned by the Holy Spirit little c catholic and apostolic church so these guys if you teach that there was a time when jesus was not and he was not before he was made so saying he was made and he was made out of nothing so he was created or another substance or thing or any other thing about him being created or that he has changed um, there is condemnation for you okay so that's pretty clear they're going to be condemned other things about this though that are important first of all the idea that the the council was used to bring um, leaders of the church together Um, this is a precedent that's set for the church that extends for a long time Um, when the church, Roman Catholic Church in the 1500s is losing ground to the Reformation the Roman Catholic Church called a council, it's called the Council of Trent and at the Council of Trent, they pretty much said the things about um, the reformers that they said about the people teaching Arianism. So the, the precedence for using a council to dictate church law and come to decisions about the church starts here. That's a, that's a major facet of church history. And it's actually, if you think about the Reformation, it's one of the ways in which the church tried to reform itself was by using councils when it started becoming corrupt in the Middle Ages. So the use of those councils, probably this is the first time it was used, and it changed the course of history forever. Uh, the view that the, the, this is the Nicene Creed, the view that the Nicene Creed gives about Jesus is accepted, about his deity is accepted in the Protestant realm, the Catholic realm, and the Eastern Orthodox realm, okay? So all the branches of quote-unquote Christianity except this creed Um, we talked last time about the apostles creed which was written before this not all branches of christianity when i say that i'm putting in quotes for the recording Um, all branches of christianity except the apostles creed the eastern orthodox church does not accept the apostles creed Um, the roman catholic church does and the protestants for the most part do Um, nicaea resolved the fact that jesus is god but it's not a perfect document. Um, It does little to distinguish between the three persons of the Trinity. That's most noted in the fact that it only says and of the Holy Ghost. We don't know anything about what the Holy Spirit's work is and how it it is a distinct person. He is a distinct person uh, from the other members of the Trinity. Um, So controversies start breaking out eventually over that as well, which we will get resolved. Um, the, The part about the condemnation was actually inserted at the influence of Constantine. It was his desire to see punishment towards the Arians and uh, condemnation towards them so that the unity of the church could be preserved. So once again, we see that balance between state and church here with Constantine. So what happens next? So up until like a month ago, I was like, okay, once Nicaea happens um everybody's resolved on the idea of the deity of christ and we all go along our merry way and the church is fine forever that is not true for the next 50 to 60 years there's arguments in the church these arians they they keep finding little ways to make inroads into the church also they make inroads into the empire into the leadership of the empire including constantine at some point these guys get exiled from their cities Uh, arius gets exiled from alexandria and eusebius gets exiled from where did i say he was from nicodemia so he gets exiled from his place at some point he hooks up with constantine and constantine brings him back to nicodemia and allows him to be back be put back in good standing with the church he even asked the bishop of nicodemia to allow eusebius to start taking communion Um, we don't know if that got resolved because before he made the decision the bishop died uh, but it's really strange there's still a battle going on today yes there is I admit that but it's not like 325 happened and the church universally accepted what was said at Nicaea you would think they would because of the level of condemnation that the document says but that's not what happened um, let's see I said all that so some of these areas began to offer a compromise okay so we said the word of same substance, same stuff, was homoousius. Okay, so they suggested the word homo So all you really excited Latin followers, there's, or it's Greek I guess, but there's one letter difference in there, and it's an I. And somehow that changes the meaning of the word from the same essence to similar essence. And the Arians are saying, how about we compromise now with, homo eusius versus homo ousis and Athanasius becomes the champion of the Nicene view of things and he argues that we can't do that that's a slippery slope once we add that one little letter we're going to change things forever so he becomes the champion of the Nicene view yet as these Arians are allowed to come back into normal civil society They start having more influence, and eventually Athanasius gets exiled as the bishop of Alexandria. Not only does he get exiled, he gets exiled five times in his life um, because he's still arguing with these folks. Um, He became the bishop in Alexandria in 328. He's exiled five times. And in church history, they kind of call this period of time with Athanasius' life, Athanasius Contramundum. Athanasius versus or against the world, contra mundum against the world. So he struggles for 50 years between the Orthodox and uh, to bring the Orthodox and Arians together, stressing the Orthodox views. The Arians, though, as they're exiled, they do other things. They send missionaries, so Arian missionaries, north, outside of the Roman Empire, to the barbarians, So in like 150 years, right, the barbarians are going to come into the south and they're going to invade Rome and take over Rome. Um, Well, guess what they're bringing with them? Arian theology. That's crazy, right? Um, So Arianism doesn't die at the Council of Nicaea. That's the point I'm making. Um, But we, so as Rome falls, Arianism comes back in the church and there's this battle for a couple, couple centuries about this view of the deity of Jesus. And councils continue, were, were, the next councils debate this. They debate the nature of the Trinity, and they give more concrete um, viewpoint to this. Um, it's important at Nicaea, I think, for us to understand that they took the Arians were using the Bible to argue for their case. So were the followers of Athanasius using the Bible, but they were formulating. They were taking they became almost like the early systematicians, systematic theologians where they took information from the Bible, maybe these are biblical theologians, took information from the Bible and created categories um, and using words that were o- outside of the Bible to define what the Bible says. Hear what I say. Um, they're saying that we're going to take all these things to talk about the oneness of the Father, and that's where the word homoousis comes in, is that it's not That word itself is not found in the Bible, but it makes up all the teachings that are influenced by the Bible. Does that make sense to me? Um, To you, makes sense to me, I think, I hope. Um, So I think that's kind of a new method that's being used at that time. Um, I think what we also need to understand is these bishops, many of them came to Nicaea bearing the marks of persecution. From the previous century from the roman empire so these guys had fought for the faith and those um, they knew that the faith was worth dying for and that a detail like the deity of christ was of utmost importance so we owe these guys that stood firm and yelled heresy and wrong at at, uh, eusebius who was teaching arius's teachings we owe a great allegiance to those guys we praise the lord for them Um, but the fact is that they not only were living in this society where they were free from persecution but they had witnessed and lived the persecution of the prior century so i commend the nicene creed to you Um, i have a copy of that for you we don't recite the 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 churches that do recite the nicene creed don't recite the condemnation part Um, and some more things are actually added to this at the next council which is the council of constantinople in 381 which we will talk about that at a couple other councils next week and um, that is all i have let's pray and then we'll have announcements okay heavenly father we praise you lord we praise you that you have um, preserved your truth lord we praise you that you have preserved um, the reality of the mysteries of you lord and that we can know a piece of those Lord, we praise you that you uh, are one. Lord, we praise you that you um, exist in three distinct persons. And each of those, Lord, are worthy of our worship. And Lord, we ask that today, as we go to the worship service, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see you, open our ears to hear your word. Lord, open our hearts, Lord, um, to what you would have us learn. May we be changed people because of the preaching of your word. And Lord, may we be faithful to love one another and to encourage one another today as we're gathered together. I ask that you would um, just bless our time today in Christ's name.